the smoke and the dust of the battle rose higher and higher until they could see nothing. Well, I was poor. I knew that. After three days, she made her way to the top of the great mountain. We love stories! It's time for the apple seed, filled with stories for you and your family. All kinds of tales from all kinds of tellers, talking about folk tales and fairy tales and tall tales and personal tales and family tales and more. And, of course, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love as stories around the kitchen table or around the living room or around the campfire. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. A story on the apple seed might spark a memory of a childhood pet or a childhood pal. It might spark the memory of a fairy tale or fable that you loved as a child. And you can open your mouth and share those things with the people that you love. In the meantime, we're thrilled every time you tune in to bring these stories into your home and into your heart. Have you ever wondered what it might like to be an ant? That's a question we'll begin with today. Small enough to hide from just about anything, but strong enough to lift thousands of times your own weight. Or maybe a bird able to soar to wonderful heights and travel to far places. Many people dream about being an animal every once in a while. And today, we have a story that will show you some of the advantages of being able to turn into an animal. In addition, we have a story from Andrew Wright and a conversation with Teresa Love about a beloved book. You're going to love every one of these stories and conversations. And we're going to begin with a story from Simon Brooks. Now, Simon Brooks was raised across the pond, but now lives in a little town in New Hampshire. He's been telling stories since 1991, just about 30 years now. And he's told stories all over the world and has recently, like so many other storytellers, becoming adept at virtual storytelling via online presentations and workshops and storytelling performances and more. Now, this story is about a girl named Jessie who grew up without much money with her father. And rumor had it that her father used to be a pirate who amassed a large fortune, but since had lost it. So when her father died, Jessie decided to seek her own fortune. She doesn't want to steal it like a pirate would, but wants to earn it honestly. Little did she know... She had a wild adventure ahead of her. Here's Simon Brooks with a story called Shape-Shifting Girl, here on The Appleseed. Jessie lived with her father in a broken-down cottage. It was said that Jessie's father had once been a pirate, but for one reason or another, his fortunes had left him. He got older and he died. They had no money, but Jessie had him buried and then went through the house looking for this fortune. But she found nothing but an old, rusty sword. She took the sword and cleaned it up and polished it until it shone like silver. And as she was doing this, a thought came to her mind. And the thought was, instead of seeking fortunes of others, seek your own. And so that's what she decided to do to seek her own fortune. She packed up what little food there was in the house into into an old bag, threw the bag over her shoulder, and left. After three days, she made her way to the top of the great mountain. She was walking between boulders and rocks, making her way along the path that led across the top of this great mountain, when suddenly she saw an old man. 
He was he was being attacked by three creatures. Well, Jessie hid. She was she was too frightened. What what can I do? She thought. What can I do to help him? She peered from behind the rock. There they were. They were they were attacking the old man. There was no way he was going to survive if they kept kept doing what they were doing. The old man saw her and reached out his hand. Help me! He called. Jessie's hand fell on the sword at her side, and she was filled with strength. She leapt from a hiding place and ran towards the old man to help him. She thrust the sword in the side of the lion and killed it. Swinging the sword through the air, she cut down the hawk, and the ant. Well, she just squished that. She then dragged the old man to a nearby stream, and with what little she had, she she washed his cuts. His wounds and dressed them as best as she could. And that evening, they shared the little food that they had together, as they sat looking at each other across the fire that they had made. The old man looked at Jessie and said, oh, "You know, you, you saved my life. I, I should give you something. I should give you a, a gift." No," said Jessie. "There's no need for that. Saving you was reward enough." That's very nice of you, but I, I want to give you a gift. I shall give you the gift of being able to turn into the three creatures that you slew today to save my life. I will give you the gift of being able to turn yourself into an ant and into a lion. Well, maybe a lioness, as you're a girl, and also the great bird of prey, the hawk. And he reached over, and blew on Jess's forehead. A shiver went through her body, and she thanked the man, but didn't pay much attention. How would I be able to turn myself into an ant or a or, or a bird of prey or a lioness? That's just silly, she thought. The next morning, when Jessie woke up, there was no sign of the old man. Maybe I dreamt it all, she thought. I was hungry after all. I've been travelling for three days with very little food and very little to drink. I, I must have had a strange dream. But I wonder, if it were true, what it would be like to be an ant. And as soon as she said that, she shrank down. She looked at her hands, and they were now the the legs of an ant. Oh, this is this is most peculiar," she said, and she she walked amongst the the pebbles that that were now huge boulders, and she she made her way through the grass that was now as tall as a tree to her. Well, I'll get lost if I stay as an ant. Maybe I should maybe I should turn myself into a lion. And as soon as she thought that, She looked at her hands, and they were now huge golden paws. She roared. Her voice echoed across the mountain top. Oh, I like that! She roared again and again, and then she leapt from boulder to boulder and ran across the top of the mountain. This is marvelous, she thought. Ah,、oh, well, if I can turn myself into an ant. And into a lion, then I can turn myself into a hawk. I wonder what it's like. She looked down at her legs, 
and now they were yellow and skinny. She opened up her arms, but her arms were now wings covered with feathers. She beat them once, twice. And found herself rising higher and higher into the sky. Oh, this is beautiful! She rose higher and higher towards the morning sun and felt the warmth of it on her back. She beat the wings harder and harder, and flew higher and higher on a thermal. And she looked down. She was so high up. She must have been up half a mile at least, maybe even a mile. She looked down and. Near where she had slept, she could see a tiny little mouse, in the grass. She folded her wings and dove down towards the mouse, but she didn't eat it. She opened her wings and took off again into the sky, feeling the wind fluttering through her feathers. It was a marvelous feeling. She flew across the mountain and down the other side. She flew across the plain, and there was a great lake. She flew across the lake, and she looked down at her reflection in the rippling water. As she flew across its surface, she began to get tired, and saw a rock in the center of this this great lake, and so flew over towards this rock and settled down on it. She turned herself back into her girl form. She rested. She looked across the rock. It was a large rock. There was nothing remarkable about it. There was a crack that ran from one side to the other. There were mosses and and lichen on it. When she had rested and recovered her strength, she turned herself back into a hawk and beat her wings and rose higher into the sky. She was about to return to her camp, to go and get her bag and the sword that she had left there. When she saw a castle on the opposite side of the lake, she had heard about castles, but she had never seen one. So she flew instead of to her camp towards the castle. Closer and closer she got to it, and it became greater and greater in its size. It was huge. She had never seen a building as big as this castle. She thought about the homes she had left, the small broken-down cottage, and how. Tiny it was in comparison to this magnificent building. Its great stone walls were many, many feet thick, and she thought of the thin wooden walls of her own home, which had cracks in it, where the wind would blow through in cold winter days. She flew around one of the great towers and looked at the golden turrets, and thought of the the earth, the sod roof, the turf roof that she had. Back home, as she came around the tower, she looked into one of the windows, and saw three three people in there. Three women. There was one girl who was about her own age, and two older women. She settled down on the window and peered in, and listened to the conversation. She gathered that the the young girl was in fact a princess, a princess dressed in the finest of of clothes made of silk. There was gold and silver brocades. Jewels were sewn into the dress. The belt that she wore around her waist was made of gold. It must have been it. It was metal and it shone so beautifully. And Jessie thought of her own rough, thin clothes that she wore in her girl form. 
She looked into the room and saw a plate of leftovers from the princess's breakfast. Some scraps for the princess. But for Jessie, it would have been a meal that would have fed not just her, but also her father. The princess suddenly noticed the bird, the hawk, that sat on the window ledge. And she took one of the pieces of meat that was left on her plate and held it out to Jessie. And Jessie, as the bird, hopped onto the princess's hand and eagerly ate this meat. Meat, oh, it tasted so good. But when she lifted her head, she realised that she was being pushed into a cage and the cage was being shut. The princess had trapped her. Jessie screeched and squawked and beat her wings, but the princess would not let her free. She would not let her out. She, she gave her more pieces of meat and she clucked and she cooed and she said, There, there, pretty bird. But she would not let Jessie free. Day slowly turned into night. Jessie was trapped inside the cage as a hawk. The princess was not going to let her out. You're listening to a story called Shape-Shifting Girl, told for you by Simon Brooks. We're happy to bring you this story on the Appleseed. What's going to happen to Jessie, trapped inside that cage like a hawk? That princess sure isn't going to let her out. We're going to find out what happens to Jessie in the rest of the story, which we're going to bring you a little later on in the hour. In the meantime, we're going to take a quick break, and then we'll be back with a story from Andrew Wright and a conversation with Teresa Love about a beloved classic, Where the Wild Things are. You won't want to miss a word. I'm Sam Payne. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. In just a few minutes, we're going to hear a story from Andrew Wright, a fairy story that you're going to enjoy. But before that, how about a conversation with a friend? Great stories get into our lives in so many ways, through, of course, the tellings of tales around kitchen tables and living rooms that then become the stories that mean a lot to us and our families and our kids and future generations. Of course, the great food that we eat is a deep well filled with stories and the great songs that we listen to. And, of course, the things we see on screen is part of the way that stories get into our hearts and minds. And the experiences that we have with great books can be some of the most meaningful ways that stories get into us. And talking about all of that is a pleasure for us to do with friends here on The Appleseed. And we're delighted to have our friend Teresa Love with us. Teresa, thanks for joining me on Happy The Appleseed. Happy to be here. <laughs> we're going to talk a little bit about – now, th- this goes all the way back to, you know – And I'm like a lot of people. This is maybe one of the very first book memories that I have. I'm of the generation into which this book sort of crept and stayed. And we're talking, of course, about – Where the Wild Things Are by Maurice Sendak. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was uh, not a grown-up by any means. I would think I was a young teenager, but my mother was going back to school, and yeah. she had taken a children's lit class, and she brought this brand-new book, um, and it caught my brother, who is your age, and uh, it was Where the Wild Things Are, and yeah. I, my word, 
that was like nothing we had ever seen before. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it's not so sweet as no. a lot of books. No. It's a little bit subversive. Yes. It's a little bit mean. Yes. It's a little bit crazy yes. and so wonderful. Yeah, and it – well, and and I, I tell um, students that I work with and, you know, parents that I talk to about reading books or telling stories and I'm like – don't read that book like in the – I call it the happy teacher voice. Like yeah. the night Max wore his wolf suit. I mean <laughs> it's like the boy is wearing a wolf suit. First of all, yeah. And if you look, he hangs his teddy bear up by the neck and he's chasing the dog with a fork. This is not a happy time. You know You know, it's like 5 o'clock and he's hungry and all that kind of stuff. And his mother calls him wild thing and he talks back. Yeah. He's a back talker. Absolutely. That's right. <laughs> and uh, but the connection that you that children can make with that, uh, whether they're horrified or identify or if it feels real, yeah. which is crazy since it's such an imaginative story, yeah. right? And is is um, illustrated so so fancifully and. And yeah, and so, so in such a terrifying way. Yes, a in a terrifying bit, right? way. I mean, we, we've we've talked a little. Where the wild things are has crept into our conversation with other friends here behind the microphone, and we've talked a little bit about uh, the Spike Jones movie too, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The film mm-hmm. adaptation of Where the Wild Things Are, and some of the rendering of some of Maurice Sendak's drawings in the context of a of a live action film, you know. But those those monsters. Of of Mari Sendex are, 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 you know, there, there's not a hard edge on any of them. They're all these sort of, you know, they're, they're, they're all stuffed animals in, in one way or another. But they're, but they're, <laughs> but, but they have they, claws. But yeah, and they're, and they are somehow super scary. Yeah. And, and yeah. I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, but my understanding is that Mari Sendex. Uh, inspiration for all those monsters were the adults in his life, yeah. his aunts and uncles. His aunts and, and uncles yeah. who would come over on you know the weekend, maybe a you know Sunday morning or something, and he'd have to be enveloped by <laughs> by these great big people yeah. that he didn't know and probably didn't smell great the way <laughs> you know, or or just that he wanted to go be someplace else. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think about uh, – uh, this is kind of an, a weird place to go maybe, but there was an interview with uh, Paul Rubens, Pee Wee Herman, uh-huh. uh, early in his – early uh, – just as Pee Wee's Playhouse, the television show, was, uh-huh. was, uh, was, was being produced. And a reviewer said, in the us versus them, them. <laughs> right, in the us versus them struggle between adults and kids – Yeah. Pee Wee Herman is definitely one of them. Yeah, right? and 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 I, I that comes back to me every once in a while, and it comes back to me when I think of where the wild things are, because uh, uh, there are parents who are sometimes a little bit dismayed by by where the wild things are. Uh-huh. And they have to be reminded that where the wild things are is. Is one of them right? absolutely, not one of us, one of them. <laughs> absolutely, and and uh, what else I, I want to to I like to remind people is. If kids aren't able to see those sorts of dark feelings, you know, embodied in a piece yeah. of literature or something like that, then they walk around thinking that they there's something wrong with them, right. that that and, you know they they're ashamed of it all. Now this story ends happily. Yeah. You know, he does get his thing to eat, and right. <laughs> it was still hot, right? Yeah. But he and he comes to himself. Also, he's sitting there thinking he really wants to be with someone who loves him best of all. Yeah. 
And um, so it's it, it it comes around nicely for anybody who's really worried that you're just going to leave your kid, you know, hanging in, you know, out in the land with the wild things. And they're now my kid's going to be wild. Yeah. But um, but and I also think, you know, I don't picture Maurice Sendak as being a particularly jolly man surrounded <laughs> by children, but he remembers what it's like to be yeah. a child. Yeah. And I think Margaret's. Margaret Weiss Brown, same thing, Goodnight Moon. I don't think she particularly liked kids that much, but yeah. she remembered what it was like to be a child yeah. and wrote books that spoke that way. Yeah, to be able to speak in a way that a child can say, that's, uh, I, I get that. Yeah, that, I get that. That resonates with, mm-hmm. with yeah. me. Not so much, the, not, not so much filled with messages that, that right. parents would like to instill in their kids. But, but Like brush your teeth. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, as you mentioned, that wonderful, wonderful ending with, with its message, right? That, that though Max has behaved like a wild thing, he's beloved of his mother. He is. <laughs> Yes. It's such a wonderful thing. Uh, where the wild things are, I want to go read it again. Good. <laughs> Thanks so much for joining us, Teresa Love. Great stories come into our lives in so many ways, through the films that we see, certainly through the telling of tales from teller to listener down through the ages, and of course through the great books that we enjoy too. It was fun to chat with Teresa Love about a classic, uh, Where the Wild Things Are by Maurice Sendak. We're going to hear a story from Andrew Wright. Andrew Wright started his professional training as a painter. He discovered, however, that he had a lot of creative ideas to be experienced expressed in words instead of painted images, and so he began to write and illustrate stories for television. And a large part of his professional life has been about using language and teaching others how to use it, too. He believes that language can't be separated from life, really. And in this story, he tells about a woman who grew up reading a fairy tale and believing that the things that happened in the fairy tale would happen to her, too. And as she grew up, she forgot about her childhood fantasy, but looking back, parts of her life lined up with that fairy tale she read as a kid. The story is called A Woman's Fairy Story. Andrew Wright is the storyteller. Happy to bring it to you here on The Appleseed. A Woman's Fairy Story I know a woman whose life was partly made by a book of fairy stories. As a young woman, she was a great beauty with her broad cheekbones, large dark eyes and long eyelashes and dark curly hair. Even now, in middle age, she's handsome. She said, Until I was about nine, I thought I was a princess. It's not surprising, really, but not because we were rich. My family were very poor. We lived in a one-roomed house with an earthen floor. There was my mother and father and my brother and my old grandma in the house. We were so poor that we only had one children's book, as far as I remember. It was a book of fairy stories, and my mum used to read one story to me every night to help me go to sleep. Nearly all the stories were about princesses. The princess always began as a poor girl and then found a handsome prince, married him and lived happily ever after. Well, I was poor. I knew that. So naturally, I assumed that I was a princess. But it was not only the story, but the pictures which made me believe that I must be a princess. The illustrator had chosen to draw a girl who looked just like me. 
I used to hold up the book in the mirror, next to my own face. There she was, broad cheekbones and big dark eyes and curly dark hair. By the time I was ten or eleven, I suspected that I, I wasn't a princess. I worked hard at school. It was the only way to lift myself out into an interesting world. In my teens, I knew for sure I wasn't a princess. But I also knew I was attractive to boys. They were always turning their heads or trying to talk to me. In my twenties, I passed my degree and got a job at the university as a lecturer. One night, I was at a party and saw a man on the other side of the room. He was tall, dark and handsome, and I fell in love at first sight. I felt sure that he was my prince. I didn't notice then that he was astonishingly like the prince which the illustrator had drawn in our fairy storybook at home. I had no problem in crossing the room and talking to him. He was nice. We got on. We began going out together. I've met him. He is a nice man and certainly tall, dark and handsome. I've seen their wedding photographs. Not those of the actual ceremony, but photographs taken late in the forest on the edge of town. It was in the autumn. The forest was an embroidery of golds, reds, yellows and umbers. The bride was in a traditional white wedding dress and a light veil. He was in a pale pastel suit and wore a blue bow tie with white spots. The photographs were enlargements and the photographer had asked the two of them to run through the wood. In one photograph she was running, holding her long white skirts with one hand and he was running behind her, reaching out as if trying to catch her in vain. In another photograph she was hiding behind a thin tree, her large white skirt sticking out on one side and her beautiful face with eyes coquettishly turned behind the veil. The photographer had made the outside parts of the print out of focus and the inside of the print in focus, giving the viewer the impression that it was a privilege to be allowed to glimpse this secret, joyful, golden and everlasting moment. The last line in her fairy stories was, And so they lived happily ever after. These photographs were the last lines in their story. Andrew Wright with a story from a collection of stories called Beggar in Bogota. Uh, in just a moment, you're going to hear uh, the rest of that Simon Brooks story. It's from a collection called More Secondhand Tales, and it's a story called Shape Shifting Girl. We're going to find out what happens to Jesse in just a moment here on The Appleseed. You're listening to The Appleseed. We'll be back in a moment. Welcome back to The Appleseed. Here's Sam Payne. It's great to have you back with us on today's episode of The Appleseed. Before the break, you heard a story from Andrew Wright, a story called A Woman's Fairy Story, about a woman who, as a girl, uh, grew up reading a fairy tale and believing that the things in the fairy tale might happen to her. But of course, as she grew up, she forgot about her childhood fantasy. But looking back, parts of her life lined up quite well with that fairy tale she had read as a kid. You heard a conversation with Teresa Love about the Maurice Sendak book, where the Wild Things Are. 
And it's time we got back to that story from Simon Brooks, Shape Shifting Girl, it's called. And in it, a girl named Jessie decided to seek her fortune. And along the way, she rescued a guy from a lion, a hawk, and an ant. And the man gave her the power to transform into each of those animals. And she used that power to her advantage. When we left her, however, she had just been captured in hawk form by a princess who didn't know she was anything but a hawk. Here's the rest of the story from Simon Brooks here on the Appleseed. Happy to bring you the conclusion of Shape-Shifting Girl. The lights in the room slowly burns down. Jessie listened carefully to the princess's breathing. And the moonlight came in through the window and Jessie could hear that the princess was asleep. And Jessie turned herself into an ant. Jessie crawled out through the bars of the cage, down the table, across the floor, and up onto the bed, where she turned herself back into her girl form. The weight of Jessie made the bed rock, and the princess opened her eyes and saw a strange shadowy figure sat on the edge of the bed, moonlight silhouetting it. The princess's eyes grew wider and wider, and she opened her mouth and screamed, Daddy! Daddy! (laughs) Jessie heard guards come charging down the corridor. She turned herself quickly back into an ant, down the bed, across the floor, up the table and into the cage where she turned herself back into her hawk form, just as... The door swung open, and in came the king. What is it, my darling? What is it, my dear? Is everything all right? Oh, daddy, 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 there's a monster in my room. Guards, search the room. The guards came in with lighted torches. (laughs) Certainly, your highness, uh, your your lordship, uh, we'll search the room no time at all. The guards looked behind the tapestries. (laughs) Nothing there, sir. They looked under the bed. (laughs) Nothing there, sir, either. They looked in the cupboard. Nothing but a lot of fur coats in there, sir. They looked in the chest at the end of the bed, but there was nothing there either. There's nothing nothing here, sir, apart from this orc and and a royal lioness. Well, my dear, said the king, I think it was just a dream. Now, now go back to sleep, my darling. And and try not to disturb me again. It's it's a busy day that I have planned for tomorrow. Good night. Good night, father said the princess, and the lights went out again. Jessie listened to the princess's breathing once more until she was sure that the princess was asleep. She turned herself back into the ant. She crawled out through the bars of the cage, down the table, across the floor, and up onto the bed, where she turned herself back into her girl form. The weight of Jessie's body, as she turned into a girl, made the bed move. The princess opened her eyes and saw the strange shadowy figure at the end of the bed, silhouetted by the moon, and she opened her eyes wider and wider and opened her mouth and screamed, Daddy! Daddy! Jessie had already turned herself back into an ant and had made it back into the cage where she turned herself back into a hawk. The door swung open. What is it, my dear? What is it this time? 
Daddy, Daddy, there, there really is a monster in my room. I saw it again. I, I woke up and I saw its shadowy shape at the end of my bed. Please, Daddy, search the room. Please, please, Daddy. Guards, search the room. Yes, sir. Well, right away, sir. And the guards came in with their lighted torches burning. <laughs> they checked behind the tapestries. <laughs> Nothing there, sir. They checked at the end of the bed and underneath the bed. Nothing there, sir. They looked in the wardrobe. Same as before, sir. They searched everywhere in the room, every nook and cranny and corner and crevice. They found nothing. The, the room seems to be empty apart from her royal highness and the orc again, sir, said the guards. My dear, twice you have woken me up. And I need my rest. Now don't wake me up again. Good night. And with that, he slammed the door shut, and the room was cast into darkness. Jessie waited and waited until the princess's breathing got deeper and deeper, and she was asleep once more. Jessie turned herself back into an ant. She crawled out through the cage, down the table, across the floor, and up onto the bed where she turned herself into her girl form. The weight of Jess's body made the bed shake, and the princess opened her eyes wide as she looked at the shadowy figure at the end of the bed, silhouetted by the moonlight. But she didn't scream this time. She was as afraid of her father as she was as a strange shape. She whimpered a little, and then Jessie said, Why are you frightened of me? <gasps> You're a girl? said the princess. Yes, I'm a girl. Of course I'm a girl. What did you think I was? I, th I thought you were a troll or, or an ogre. Well, why would you think that, said Jessie. Because I had two sisters and both of them were stolen away by trolls and ogres. That's terrible, said Jessie. That's why I stay in the tower, said the princess. For my own safety, really, because... I don't want to be stolen away by the trolls. I don't, I don't want to be taken away by them and, and made to be a, a wife of one of these beasts. That's why I stay in this tower. Is there no way of saving you from them? said Jessie. No, not at all. You see, they send this nine-headed dragon, and we have to give it nine livestock, nine sheep or nine horses or nine cows, and and our town is, is, is running out of livestock. And this dragon, they send it. And, and unless I give myself up to the ogres, and I don't want to do that. I'll slay the dragon, said Jessie. But how, how can you? You're a girl. And how did you get in here? I'm not just a, a girl. I'm also a hawk, said Jessie. And she turned herself back into her hawk form. Ooh, said the princess. That That's clever. Then Jessie turned herself back into a girl form. I can also turn myself into an ant. And Jessie turned herself into an ant. Ew, that's, that's, that's weird. Jessie turned herself back into a girl form and said, I can also turn myself into a lioness. Look. Ooh, I, I think I like the hawk best, said the princess. And Jessie turned herself back into a girl. Look. I have a sword that I left back at my camp before you kept me in the cage. I need to fly back and get that, and then I'll come back in the morning, and I'll fight your dragon, and I'll save you from him. You'd do that? Yes, I would, said Jessie. And she turned herself back into a hawk and flew out through the princess's window. True to her word, 
Jessie came back the next day with her sword, and the princess introduced Jessie in her human form, of course, to the king. Um, my my new friend Jessie said that she's going to save us from the dragon. <laughs> What? Said the king.、Uh, Jessie is going to save us from the dragon. She's going to kill the nine-headed dragon. Oh, she's just a young girl. How is a young girl going to kill a nine-headed dragon? Um, forgive me, your Majesty," said Jessie. "But don't cook the goose until it's laid its eggs." Well, of all the impertinent things I've heard, Stuart, come here. Oh, yes, sir, yes, sir. Stuart, go and take this young lady. What did you say her name was, Jessie? Go and take this young lady and and take her up to where the dragon's due to show up today. Oh, yeah, oh yes, sir. Righty ho, sir. And so the steward led Jessie up onto the hill, about a mile away from the castle. Um, if if you don't mind, young lady, I'll I'll just run back to the castle and 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 make sure everything's all right back there. Okay. <laughs> um,、uh, good luck. Bye. <laughs> and off the steward ran. Jessie didn't have to wait long, until she heard. Feet of the dragon, and then she saw the nine heads of the dragon coming over the top of the hill, spitting out fire and smoke.、Mm. Where is my livestock?、Mm. You've bitten off more than you can chew today," said Jessie to the dragon. We'll see about that, shan't we? And with that, one of the great dragon heads flew down towards Jessie, its jaws wide open. But she shrunk down as a lion and leapt to one side, and all that head of the dragon got was a mouthful of dirt. She leapt up onto the neck of the dragon just before it rose its head high into the sky. She drew her sword in her girl form and <laughs> cut the head off the dragon. You're not quite so frightening with one less head, she said. And then the battle began in earnest. The people in the castle watched the battle begin. They could see Jessie turning herself into a lioness, a hawk. They couldn't see her turn herself into an ant because it was too small. But they would see her in a girl form again, striking at the dragon with her sword. But then the smoke and the dust of the battle rose higher and higher until they could see nothing. All they could hear were the shouts and the screams, the claws slashing through the air, the sound of the sword clashing against the scales, the dragon howling and beating its wings, Jessie roaring as a lion or screeching as a hawk. Day turned to night, and suddenly there was silence. Nobody knew if Jessie had won or if the dragon had won, but Jessie knew. She was standing there. The nine-headed dragon was separated from its nine heads. She couldn't carry all of the nine heads back to the castle to prove that she had slaughtered the dragon. They were too big, so she opened up the dragon's mouths and one by one cut the tongues out. And under the tongue of one of the heads, she found a pearl. She'd never seen a pearl before. It was the most beautiful thing she'd ever seen. It was like the full moon in the sky. Oh, this is beautiful! I shall keep it. And she put it in her pocket. She made her way back to the castle, and laid out the nine tongues from the nine heads of the nine-headed dragon. 
and said, Your Majesty, I have killed the dragon. <laughs> well done, Jesse. I knew you could do it all along. Didn't I say so? Yes, marvellous job. Absolutely marvellous. Yes, said Jesse. The princess, she came running down from the tower. She was so excited. Oh, Jesse, take, take, take me into the garden and, and tell me how you fought this dragon. And so they left and walked into the moonlit garden. Jesse was about to tell the princess about the battle when suddenly over the wall came a troll. It ran over to the princess and grabbed her and tucked her under her arm and carried her off screaming, ah! oh, I've got you now, <laughs> said the troll. And off it ran, once again leaping over the tall wall of the castle. Jessie didn't wait a moment. She turned herself into a hawk and flew <laughs> after the running beast. But she, she found it hard to see at night. She, she flew as fast as she could after the creature and the screams of the princess. But then by the lake, she lost them. She circled higher and higher in the sky, hoping the moonlight would give her a clue as to where they had gone. But there was no sign of them anywhere. And then Jessie remembered the rock. She flew over to the rock and settled down. She turned herself into her ant form, scurried over to the crack and started to make her way down the crack. Down and down and down she went until she came to the bottom where there was a door. The door was locked. But do you think a locked door is a problem to an ant? Certainly not. She just scurried underneath the door and there was a great hall. She went from room to room, peering underneath, between the cracks. One room had a, a woman in it that looked a little bit like the princess, only older. I, I wonder if this is one of the princesses that the princess was talking about. I wonder if this is one of the princess's sisters, thought Jessie. And she went to another room and to another room, and there she found another woman, older than the other one, who also looked like the princess. This must be the right place, she said. She made her way into the other rooms, and there she came across the princess, sat down with the ogre, the troll. Jessie watched. The troll lay its head next to the princess and said, Delouse me. I don't know what you mean. Well, pick the bugs out of me hair, will ya? Oh, okay, said the princess. And she ran her fingers into the matted hair of the troll and found a, a, a lice and pulled it out and popped it. And, oh, don't! She reached in to his hair and pulled out another lice and... She pulled another and another. Jessie, as an ant ran across the floor and climbed up the princess's leg and bit her. <gasps> the princess looked down, expecting to see one of the bugs that had jumped off the troll, but saw the ant there, and she realised that it must be Jessie. Um, excuse me, Mr Troll. Oh, you can call me Nigel. Um, excuse me, Mr Troll. I feel a little bit queasy. Can I step out of the room for a minute to get a little bit of air? Hurry back, my precious. I will. And the princess left the room, with Jessie still hanging onto her leg. Once outside in the corridor and the door shut behind her, Jessie turned herself into a girl form. Ask the troll if you'll ever see your father again, said Jessie. 
Why? said the princess. Just ask him. Okay. And Jessie turned herself back into an ant and leapt on the princess's foot. And the two of them made their way back into the room. The princess sat down in the chair once more and gazed off into space. Um, what are you doing? Delouse me. Oh, I was just thinking, said the princess. Thinking? About what? Well, about my father and if I'll ever see him again. Well, I doubt it. Why? Well, for a start off, someone's got to have to kill the nine-headed dragon, haven't they? And that's not likely to happen, is it? Um, no. And then they'd have to cut all the heads off that nine-headed dragon and look inside the dragon's mouths, because under one of those tongues, they would find a pearl. Yes? And they'd have to take that pearl and bring it to the rock in the middle of the lake, and they'd have to drop that pearl down the crack that runs across the rock on the lake. For then, and only then, would this great rock that we live in be returned to its former glory of a castle, and the lake would vanish, and the fertile lands that were once there would return, and us trolls would be turned into stone. And that's not likely to happen, now is it? Now debug me. Oh, I don't suppose it will happen, said the princess, for she hadn't heard the whole story about the pearl. But Jessie had heard enough. She leapt off the princess's foot and scurried under the door and down the hallway. She found the door and climbed under it and then went up the rock, up and up and up and up she went until she got to the top of the rock. She turned herself into her girl form, took the pearl out and dropped it down the crack. Bing! Bing! Bing, bing, bing! The rock that she was standing on started to rumble and shake. And it slowly turned into a great castle. And as Jessie watched in the moonlight, the lake seemed to vanish. And there, underneath, were the most fertile lands that you could imagine. Jessie ran down into the dungeons of the castle and heard this terrible... The trolls had turned to stone. As an ant, she were able to break the locks or the doors and let the three princesses free. They then made their way across the lands, back to the princess's father's castle. And there was great rejoicing. A huge feast was given to everybody. The king smiled at Jessie and said, Well, um, I, I had promised that um, whoever rescued my daughters would be able to marry one of them. Oh, really? said Jessie. Um, yes, and I, I also said that whoever rescued my daughters could have half of my kingdom. Oh, really? said Jessie. Yes, said the king. I, thank you very much for the offer, but I don't need it. What? Well, I'll take the land where the lake used to be, and I'll take the castle that used to be the rock, the castle that belonged to the trolls. Oh, nicey. And so that's what happened. Jessie lived in that castle, and she lived on her own lands. But if you were to visit that castle today and search for Jessie, you probably would not find her. You see, more often than not, she was out seeking fortunes of her own. Shape-shifting girl. 
an adventure featuring Jessie, who sought to seek her fortune and saved a guy from a lion, a hawk, and an ant, and was given the power to transform into each of those animals. It was a pleasure to hear that story, a pleasure also to hear from Andrew Wright and from Teresa Love with a conversation about the classic picture book, Where the Wild Things Are, that terrific story from Maurice Sendak. You know, we always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. And that conversation may have brought to mind books, picture books, and otherwise that may have been favorites of yours, formative even as you grew and read and some of those stories got down into you. We're going to wrap up today with an entry in the Radio Family Journal. You know, I think of the story like the story we heard from Simon, and I think of the stories that my parents used to tell me, sometimes on long drives, stories that they made up or that they themselves knew as kids and the way those stories shaped me. But it's not just the stories that my parents shared with me that shaped me. There are things that my parents did, ways that they lived and behaved that I observed and became foundational in some of the ways that I live now. And as I think about these stories, I'm thinking about some of that stuff. Here's a story about something that my dad did without knowing it might affect me. An entry in the Radio Family Journal on the Appleseed. The Radio Family Journal with Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it. On the Appleseed. I remember when my dad decided to start running, a mile a day. He was in his early 30s, and I was in elementary school. He got pretty deep into it pretty fast, and what I mean by that is that on days when my mom walked me to school, we'd walk to school. But on the days when my dad walked me to school, he'd wheedle until I agreed to run at least part of the way. Pretty soon he was running everywhere, and not just a mile a day, two miles, and then five miles. And I just couldn't see what was so great about it. We lived in a little town against the Wasatch Mountains in Utah, and he'd come home with stories of running among deer, sometimes stories of deer jumping right over his head. He had stories of finding snakes on his morning run and of standing at a safe distance while they slithered on by. These were some of the adventure stories of my childhood. And while I loved to hear them, none of them made me want to put on a pair of running shoes and join him. It just looked like a good way to get tired and sweaty and sore. It looked hard. I remember driving in the car with my dad, though, along his running routes. We'd be keeping an eye on the odometer, measuring out the lengths of each route so that he knew which route was a five-mile route and which was a three-mile route and so forth. He even measured out distances within the routes. He knew that the distance between such and such a stop sign and such and such an old tree was a half-mile or whatever. I liked being in the car with my dad, but the running seemed like a heck of a lot of trouble. I was not interested. And then one day, I felt blue. I can't even remember why. An argument with my mom, a failed test at school, a flat bike tire, trouble with a neighbor kid. I don't know. I don't remember what the trouble was. I only remember what it made me do. I decided to take a long walk. 
and I struck out along what I knew to be one of my dad's running routes. I knew it was exactly a mile between our house and the tree at the edge of town, the tree that marked the end of the houses and the beginning of the dirt road that wound around the big flat empty bench at the foot of the mountains to the east of us, the mountains that marked the mouth of American Fork Canyon. I'd walk to that tree. Halfway there, I was breathing hard. Three-fourths of the way there, and sweat stood on my forehead, and I could feel the burn in my legs. These were the very things, I thought, that kept me from running. But when I got to the tree, I didn't want to stop. I felt better than I did before my walk. I kept going. Down the dirt road, out across the bench. From the south, a storm was rolling in, and I watched the enormous gray clouds tumbling across the sky toward me. The wind whipped up tossing the grass on the bench and the heads of the trees on the mountain slope that rose from it. A summer storm, not cold, not even as yet wet, just wild, huge and wild. I leaned into the wind, pumped my legs harder beneath those enormous clouds on that windswept bench. I felt impossibly small, like a single blade of grass in a windstorm. But I felt something else, too. Like a single blade of grass in a windstorm, I felt like I was part of what was going on out there, as much a part of what was going on out there as the grass or the wind. And it did something to me. I got it. I got why my dad went out there every day to run. I could see it. I could feel it. I was vulnerable and small and also part of the world, watching nature move around me. I felt, well, I felt great. I never did become the runner that my dad was. I ran on and off through college, and I used to push my son around in a stroller as I ran trails in the early days of being a dad. And now I walk a lot. I like how it feels out there, out of the house, under the sky, nature free to move around with me somewhere in the mix. Experts would say it's important to get out like that, not just for your muscles and your bones, but for your brain, for your sense of well-being, for all of that. I believe the experts, of course, but it doesn't take experts to confirm what I feel when I get out there. It's undeniable. And for me, it's something of a gift, a gift that came to me or began to when I was in elementary school, when my dad decided to start running a mile a day. The Radio Family Journal of Sam Payne. A tiny little story for you and your family. Right when you need it, on the Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for that entry in the Radio Family Journal. You know, I wonder if my dad knows how his running routes affected me as a teenager. I feel like I ought to call him up and tell him about that stuff. We always hope that the stories that we bring you here on the show spark memories and thoughts for you that you can share with the people that you love. That kind of storytelling can make for memories that last a lifetime. It's been our pleasure to share with you today stories from some of our favorite Simon Brooks with his story, Shape-Shifting Girl. That was a long story from a collection called More Secondhand Tales, just part of the body of work of a terrific storyteller who has told stories all over the world on stages and in classrooms and at storytelling festivals. And now, like so many other storytellers, is finding ways to share stories online through workshops and presentations and certainly performances by himself and with other storytellers. That's what a lot of 
storytellers are doing these days, and you can find all sorts of great storytelling performances online. And you can support some of your favorite storytellers and meet storytellers that will become favorites as you listen to them. It was also a pleasure today to hear from Andrew Wright and to have a conversation with Teresa Love about the book Where the Wild Things Are. That was a pleasure, that book being a part of my childhood, probably a part of yours too, that Maurice Sendak classic. And we encourage you to share with the people that you love some of the important books, picture books or otherwise, that were part of your childhood, part of your growing up, part of your foundation in great stories. And of course, you can find us online at byuradio.org slash Appleseed. You'll find an archive there of all kinds of stories, all kinds of tellers. And of course, you'll meet some of your favorites there and some who will become favorites as you listen to them. This hour was written by Trent Horton. Our audio engineer is Carly Robison. And our producer is Jeff Simpson. I'm Sam Payne. We love to hear from you. Send us an email at theappleseed at byu.edu. Again, that's theappleseed at byu.edu. And I can't wait to be with you again on The Appleseed. Thanks for joining us for an hour of stories, music, and conversation made for you and your family and brought to you by The Appleseed. The show is a production of BYU Radio. We'll see you next time. Hey, it's Sam. Just one more thing before we go. There's so much produced by BYU Radio that you're sure to enjoy, including Treasure Island 2020, the swashbuckling time-traveling pirate podcast in 10 parts. You can find it by Googling it. We'll see you next time.